You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Perth Property Show. Today, we have got Michael Lazaro from Ventura back in the studio. I loved our chat last time just talking about a few of the home truths in the house and land industry. And I wanted to have another really frank conversation today about his top five tips to designing a cost-effective and appropriate home for your expectations and the budget of the locality. Michael, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Trent. Good to be back. Mate, hit us with number one. All right, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. You obviously probably see what most builders will generally post about. I want to talk about the things that they don't. So number one would be furnishability. Hit me with a dictionary understanding of that word. Okay, firstly, I would look at if you are building a new home, are you going to keep your current furniture? If you are, I would recommend taking measurements of all the furniture, your couch, your dining table, the kids' beds, your master bedroom. And what I would do, I would be making sure that you can furnish the room in an appropriate manner. So in terms of being able to put your couch in and have a TV on a particular wall, that's not a window, or exactly have right. a dining room table where the chairs can be pulled out and not hit a wall. That's exactly right. So one of the most common mistakes I see is a full height window in a living room where the back of a couch is going to go. So that's where you can have a little bit of control with the builder and be prepared and come to them. To be honest, they should be asking you these sorts of questions anyway, but I would recommend being prepared. It's stuff that a less ethical sales rep will scoot over to get close to sealing a deal rather than actually focusing on the outcome for the client and going, well, look, hang on a sec. Let's take a second to think about furnishability. What furniture do you have? And where's a TV going to go? I see so many designs, you're right. Even just in the newspaper where the living room is full of windows, which is great for lighting. But where are you putting your couch? Where are you putting your TV point? Yeah, exactly right. Depending on the builder that you're looking at, they may not be the right builder for you. They might not be design focused. They might be more at a a cheaper price Is that a competent builder then? I mean, design's everything. It depends what you're looking for. So if you're a first home buyer with a low budget and design isn't that important to you, then it possibly falls into that category. I still feel like that for whatever price point you're at, even if you've got the cheapest property in the back of Armadale, you should still be able to build for whatever price point a house that is livable. Unfortunately, a lot of those sales reps are trained heavily with finance and that's their main priority. So myself, for example, I focus heavily on design. I don't really get involved as much with the finance side of things. I always recommend to clients to do their own research with regards to their finance. Of course, I can help with that side of things, but I'm working for a builder that does focus heavily on design. So if that's important to you, furnishability, then you should be asking those questions. And more importantly, the builder should be asking you those questions. What type of furniture do you have? Where do you plan on putting things? Do you want to be able to watch the TV whilst you're cooking? So it's all important. You don't want to be spending 10,000 bucks at the end of a build where you've just spent all your cash getting the build done, then going and buy, going down a domain and buying a brand new couch. Exactly right. That's, yep. it. That's exactly right. And you see it a lot with new homes, uh, even display homes as well, where they haven't thought well enough about furniture placement. So it's definitely something very important to consider at the early stages of the design process. All right, good. Number two? Storage. Can't get enough storage. Tell us about where storage is important. Uh, I guess um, maybe the answer is everywhere and at a very minimum what you should be expecting to have a comfortable and practical home. Well, I want to start with the garage. It's often forgotten about. They're getting tiny these days, aren't they? 
They are, they are. So look at a good size for a garage, 6.2 by 6.2. It obviously depends on the width of the block. If you're building on a 10 meter wide block, it's gonna be very difficult to get a garage that wide. But I would recommend adding storage to the garage. I myself do a bit of camping. So I have a swag, I have camp chairs, I have eskies, barbecues. You gotta think about Christmas decorations. Where are they going to go? If they're not going in the garage, they're going in the house somewhere, which is generally where you're going to need linen storage, towels. So mm. garage is certainly something. If you have the room, I would be recommending putting storage in the garage. Height of the ceiling. That's something that builders so often scam people on is the height of the garage. It can get super low. Everyone thinks they've got their 30 course or 28 course or 21 course house. And then suddenly they go into the garage, it's 25 course. They can't get a four-wheel drive in there. Minimum 28 course. Yeah. If you've got a four-wheel drive with roof racks, 31 course. So I would be measuring the height of your car again before finalizing the design and and notifying the builder what height clearance you need for the garage yep so you, you sorted your garage out even having the mandatory storeroom is that better to have it in a garage or is we people still building a shed we're not seeing so many sheds these days blocks are obviously getting smaller so especially in the outskirts it's not really common you do see it in areas like golden bay mandra two rocks where you've got your 750 plus blocks and they, they've got room for side access and a shed at the back. If we're talking Bell Divers, PR Waters, Brabham, it's not so common. So they don't come standard in most designs. So that's something that clients need to be made aware of. And often it will be glossed over by a sales consultant. A good sales consultant should be asking these questions. What stuff do you have at home? How much storage do you need? So the design process, it shouldn't be quick. This is the biggest investment of your life. So it's important that we make sure that, well, look, let's be honest, one of the main reasons you're building is because you probably haven't found something suitable in the established market. So you do it once and you do it right. What about internals, overhead cupboards in laundries, kitchens, pot drawers, all these things are not standard. No, they're not. So overhead cupboards, I think, are a definite in the kitchen. Depending on the size of the kitchen, you may have a very large walk-in pantry or scullery and therefore you don't have the need. Make a list of your appliances, rice cookers, coffee machines, thermo mixers. Where are they going to go? Compare it to your kitchen at home at the moment. How well does that function for you? What don't you like about your kitchen at home? I myself, there's a number of things I don't like about my current kitchen, which is the first thing that I would fix when designing a new kitchen. Drawers. One of the big things I see is bin drawers. It's often forgotten about. I don't think it cuts it sitting next to the fridge anymore. So no. it's 2020, guys. So. Exactly. Uh, again, I just want to harp back pot drawers. We never see them as standard with a builder. It's always something that I think most of the time we glossed over. You've just got your, your swing door sort of, sort of yep. arrangement because it's cheaper to build. Should we be asking for an upgrade on pot drawers so that we can have you know a bit more space, a bit more practical sort of storage as well, isn't it? 100%, especially for elderly people that can't bend down. It's going to be very hard to access the back of cupboards. So as a minimum, I'd be saying two sets of pot drawers and that's what I tell my clients as well. So you're looking at a cost of around about $1,000 for that. So these are things that you should be factoring into your budget. One of the more horrendous things I see is where the walk-in robe or just the robe uh, or the linen sliding robe has no shelving at all. Yes, look, Trent, it does happen. I think it's important that, that you're going through this with the builder and asking all the right questions, making sure that these things are included. It's not uh, cheap though, is it? If you're, if you're adding these in above the standard spec, which is generally to have maybe one shelf as a maximum normally, 
it gets pretty costly pretty quickly to have all this internal cabinetry happening. 100%. So let's say if the builder doesn't have any robes in the bedrooms or let's say they have a shelf and rail but no door, if you're adding mirrored sliding robes, you're looking at a cost of about $3,000 to do the house for the three minor bedrooms. So it adds up very quickly. So uh, I'd be asking to see their standard specification, getting them to walk you through the showroom. I would have a copy of the plan and I would just go through room by room and I'd be ticking off the items. If you are new to this, it is imperative that you do your research as you may not be aware of some of these items. All right, number three. Number three, electrical. This is a massive one for me. Pre-start, always a big jack up. Extra power points, extra light sauce. We thought we were going to have you know three or four downlights in every room and it turns out we've got one halogen per room. Get to pre-start, there goes $3,000. At least. Does Do your electrical prior to pre-start. Do not go into pre-start blind with no idea on electrical. This can also affect bank valuations at the moment. So if you are maxed out with your borrowing capacity, you need another three to $4,000 for electrical. We're seeing delays with getting finance at the moment. So mm. ask your builder to put an electrical allowance in upfront. Get them to name the exact amount of power points and light points that are included. Builders will generally include one light point per room and one double power point. What do you it's think you probably need? I would be thinking at least an extra 15 to 20 power points. You're looking at a cost of somewhere between $900 and $1,300, depending on which builder you're looking at. Also, I don't think the standard lighting cuts it. One light bayonet per room uh, was great in the mid-90s, but I think LEDs are, are a must-have. So I wouldn't be saying LEDs throughout the whole home, but at the very minimum entry, living areas, theatre room, and the master. So I would be putting aside $2,000 for that. So let's say $4,000 for an electrical mm. allowance would be suffice for most homes. Yeah, okay. That's important inside the house. Don't forget your lighting in the alfresco on the porch as well. I'm glad you asked that. There is generally no standard lighting on a porch pier or a garage pier at the front of the home. So you often see the nice up and down lights that people upgrade. That's the sexy stuff that we see in the photos. It, it makes the house pop. It's the point It's the point of difference. So you don't important. want to put them in once the house is built. No, you've got a lot of, uh, yeah, well, I don't think your Sparky would be too happy no. if you did that. So it's important that you factor those things in. And it's cheaper uh, to get them in, in the build. It is, 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there an external light to the laundry? If you have uh, raised ceilings to the alfresco, is there LED lighting? Let's talk ceiling fans. Yeah. Very hot climate here in Perth. Are you going to want a ceiling fan Seems in the alfresco? Seems a bit out of touch to have ceiling fans in the bedroom because we all want reverse cycle ducted air conditioning these days, but why not in the alfresco? It is expensive to run, the air con. Uh, I wouldn't be recommending ceiling fans with 28 core ceilings. If you do have high ceilings throughout, then a ceiling fan is going to work. I'd be getting a haircut every day if that happened to me. You would be. You're not a, not a short man. So let's also not forget the garage. Let's think if you are going to have a workbench out there, you're going to need a power point. You might want to upgrade the standard light to a, a fluoro light. You might want to upgrade the standard light to a fluoro light. So it's important to work your way through the home, room by room, mark it up with some texture and work out where you want your power points. I would then be giving that to the builder and getting them to price everything in for you. Yeah, you don't want surprises. It's all about not having su surprises when you get all the way to the point where you're getting emotional, starting to get emotional about the colors and everything, and then add, 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 plus, plus, plus. Suddenly, you come out of that pre-start meeting seven, $8,000 down. Correct. That'd be heartbreaking. And you don't have finance for it. That's right. So it's important. Have a pre-start allowance built into the home. Have fixed costs for all your electrical items. And that alleviates any issues with bank valuations down the track and it also eliminates any surprises. All right. What's the fourth one? Elevation. 
Not many people talk about it. What does that mean to the punter out there? What's an so elevation? An elevation is the front of the home. What so it looks it's, like. Yeah, exactly right. It's often forgotten about. And I, I find that probably 75% of my clients never ask about it. They just expect it to look nice. They, they do don't know it. what that looks like though. They just think it's going to be nice. But that's not standard. It's not. I always say to my clients, take photos of homes around where you live. Go and visit some display homes. Send me photos of what you like. So there's different ways of adding value to an elevation. We can look at stone cladding on the front elevation. We can look at uh, timber cedar lining to a portico recess. We can look at adding corner windows. You might want to add an element of single course face brick. Like a blade wall sort of thing. Exactly right. One thing to consider as well, in new estates, they have strict design guidelines. So make sure that you're asking the builder, are you meeting these design guidelines? What you don't want to happen is someone coming back to you at pre-start saying, sorry, we haven't allowed for these things. And again, you're going to be out of pocket. So Yeah, you get all the way through, the quote's done, everything's done, and then you start looking more seriously at the elevation sketches, which are black and white normally and, and 2D, hard to really understand. Correct. And you go, hang on a sec, is that what my house is going to look like? There's no pitch, there's no hips, really hips and valleys, there's hardly any level of identity at all to this house. And that's we're way past having to get to that structure where all the working drawings are done. Suddenly you start losing time and a lot of money that you wouldn't have expected to make those structural changes. Exactly right. And I often see builders doing hand-drawn sketches with no elevations. You're spending upwards of $200,000 on a home. The lease that the builder can offer you is an elevation. So I would a not A lot of the be... builders have nice 3D renders these days. They do. They do. If you're looking at uh, more of the, I guess, premium project builders, that is a standard where they're offering uh, CGIs. So you can see exactly what the home looks like. The roof lines are drawn. All the setbacks are on the block drawn correctly. So that's where people can get caught out as well. And elevations are not cheap. I would probably say in the region of three dollars to $5,000 to upgrade the elevation to get it to where most people are happy with. In saying that, if you are looking at more of a premium project builder, generally their elevations are already upgraded. Mm, I would have thought so. You'd, you'd hope so. It's, it's an expectation that when you go to those brands that pride themselves on being of quality, they'll at least have a minimum standard that's above what most others would be. That's right. And that's why there can be such a vast price difference between builders. So People think you're ripping, you, ripping them off though. That's it's exactly that the standard specs a lot higher than well, that's other right. standard spec. That's right. And you see builders advertising, uh, you know, homes from $150,000. So I can guarantee you, you're not going to be happy with the front elevation on that home. It's going to have inferior storage. It's not going to have enough electrical items as well. So it's plus, plus, plus. Yeah, it's a drip feed. And that's the deregulation or unregulation in this industry that makes me so angry and makes a lot of people so angry one day there has to be a level of regulation to enforce builders to demonstrate what you're getting for your price at certain price points and no level of misleading or deceptive conduct in the way that things are advertised anymore if everyone plays by the same game i think a lot of that behavior will be cut out absolutely also beware building reps out there that are doing their own sketches that may not have a background in design. They may have been in the industry for six to 12 months and they've put together a, a hand sketch. One of the things that differs from different estates and, and obviously development sites as well is the requirements with the R codes. Planning so, requirements. Yeah. Exactly right. What are the setbacks? It might what look like a fantastic coverage? design, but it just will never get passed through council. Exactly right, which sort of leads me into my fifth and final tip, which is the cost effectiveness 
sense of design. So let's talk about the R codes, for example. You may have a, a narrow block. It's zoned R20. You're only allowed one boundary wall as standard. So uh, if a builder's coming back to you and they've got three boundary walls in this design, a, it's probably not going to get through planning, and B, it's not designed cost effectively. In the same breath, it might be unavoidable due to the size and the shape of the block, but it is... But you should probably avoid that block in the first place then. Depending on your budget. So it all boils down to budget. If you're happy to buy a narrow block and you do have the budget for a narrow lot design that is going to cost a little bit more, then it's not a problem. Why, I guess on really basic terms, why is a narrow lot design more expensive than... Uh, wider frontage design you generally have a lot more cavity brickwork so you are hugging the boundary side to side so you do have I guess you have a bit more zigzagging with the brickwork you also have zero lot walls that refers to when a uh, boundary wall is being built right on the boundary so that incurs additional costs as well. Fire protection. Exactly right so if we're building hard up against the boundary we want to make sure that if there is a fire in the uh, next door's residence that it's not going to jump across and, and torch the house. I guess from my perspective that I've un- always understood it is the rectangle with the least perimeter is a square. Correct. So the longer that rectangle gets, the more perimeter, the more bricks, the more roof, the more ceiling, the more expensive it is. That's correct. And that's why cottage lots can be pretty expensive when you look at what you're getting. That's exactly right. So that's why a narrow lot is generally more expensive. Also something to consider is internal walls. How much internal brickwork do you have? Wasted space with the design. Do you have uh, an excess of hallways? One thing that really bugs me with design, and I see this often, is that I often see a living and dining design, which is a bit like a square. So we talk about the house being like a square, that's fine. Your living and dining should not be like a square. A good size living dining area, 4.5 by 9 meters, often I'll see a 6 by 6. Now that brings me back to furnishability. You're not really going to be able to furnish that space, so make sure that your sizes are in proportion with the whole home. It does make a lot of sense. Obviously, sometimes unavoidable, but that's where you need to be able to pre-fees your land before you even buy it. So you don't get caught up trying to turn that lemon into lemonade. Exactly right. People do get caught out. Um, If you are also building in an infill area, generally you've got to look at new fencing, retaining. There might be an encroachment from the neighbor's fence. So these are all things to consider up front. And look, I'd be chatting to builders before purchasing the land, ask them for some design options and pricing and try and mitigate some of those risks up front. What would be the minimum frontage and the minimum square meterage of a, of a piece of land that would give you enough flexibility to build cost effectively? I'd be looking at something in the region of 375 square meters. Uh, typically, you'll find a 12.5 by 30 block. You don't have the need to build on the boundary. The garage will be the only wall on the boundary, and that's quite standard these days. So that's going to keep your costs down. You can maintain uh, a square to rectangle type shape, and it's not going to inflate building costs versus a, you know, say, 10 meter wide block. A nice big frontage will always sell better than a skinny frontage as well anyway. Absolutely. I'm finding that most clients are looking for that wider frontage. Mm. If they are buying the narrower frontages, they're considering going two-story. Yeah, and fair enough. That's totally fine because you've got two stories of frontage to deal with. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Any final tips for us, Michael, off the top of your head on making sure that you're getting the best bang for your buck with a build before you even bought that piece of land. I might go a bit off topic here. So we've talked about being cost effective. So 
we talked about electrical and making sure that the right allowances are made. One thing that is often uh, glossed over is site work. So make sure that you're getting a full detailed breakdown from your builder on the site works. What is included, what isn't. If you are building in an older area, I can tell you now, 15 grand standard SiteWorks is not gonna cut it. So much like a lot of your development sites, Trent, as you know, you can run into unknown problems with sewer lines, new fencing, retaining. Asbestos. So, asbestos removal, everything like that. So make sure that the builder is including a couple of these items, soakwells, crossover. Are they including the Shire fees? So for a standard A-class site in an estate, the minimum SiteWorks should be around about 15,000. Something else to look out for, some of these estates in Byford, uh, Bushmead, those types of areas may have a footing detail. They may be building on a clay site. So if the builder hasn't allowed that up front, that's something which you're going to get stung for later down the that's track. That's tens of thousands of dollars. It can be potentially, yes. Michael, thanks very much. This has been really informative. Thank you for being so open about uh, your industry and, and helping our listeners get you know, really just the straight and narrow on uh, what's going on right now. Uh, mate, we look forward to having you in again to chat more about owner-occupied house and land style building. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Okay, suburb spotlight time now. We are talking about our capital suburb. It's Perth, not the wider metro area. We're literally talking about Perth as a suburb today. And to many people's surprise, this isn't just the CBD. Perth is a bit of an interesting suburb in terms of its location uh, and the little pockets of it. We'll talk with our number one agent. It is Brad Triplett. Thank you very much for coming in, mate. Thanks, Trent. Thanks for having me. I normally start with a history question about uh, what the history on the suburb is. This is a little bit of an extensive one for you. This goes back to the dawn of time, a good 170 years ago. Perth's an uh, interesting suburb. It's not a outer suburb suburb. It's There's different parts to it. We've got the inner city side, which is very much the apartment skyrise apartment market of, of the Perth suburb and then you jump across the border a little bit and you've got houses that are 100 years old, terrace homes, beautiful streets. Heritage um, listed properties. Heritage listed properties. You know, there's just such a vast variety of, of properties in, in, in the Perth 6000 suburb, which which is why I, I love working in it. I was given a book for my birthday. It's now one of my favorite books. It's a picture book <laughs> and it's from Lost Perth. So many awesome photos historically. We talk about you know, the genesis of Perth as a suburb starting as just wooden houses and moving into two and three story skyscrapers. So many of them knocked down in the 70s, unfortunately. So much so much of our beautiful history, unfortunately, uh, was knocked down in the 70s for all of our uh, modernist skyscrapers, I guess you've got now. And it's hard to imagine a time when the extent of our city really was bounded by a bridgeless uh, north of the river Perth suburb, right? There was no train line uh, and it really just went from Kings Park to Claysbrook Cove, which didn't exist back then. It's it's crazy, yeah. It's crazy. You look at but you look back at all the photos that are in the the butchers and the the old bars around Perth. Just sold a property in the Maltings building that we were talking about just before, and you can really feel the history behind the suburb. And then you cross over onto the city side, and it's all brand new, shiny glass apartments, brand new builds, train lines, free cat buses. It's a real buzz on that side. So yeah, it's a it's a very uh, vast suburb. There's a lot of different walks of life that come through the Perth 6000 postcode, which which is another reason I, I do love it. You're meeting so many different people from, from all walks of life. It certainly keeps things fun and interesting when you see it, it change so much like it does. I guess we don't need really to have a much of a lifestyle update on what Perth's 
city lifestyle is because most people have spent a lot of their time in their life popping in either for work or for fun. But can you give us a bit of a capture as to what living in the suburb of Perth means to you? What does that lifestyle mean? And maybe if you can split it up for us between the pockets of Perth because it's not just the CBD where the sky rises. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, I've just come from a, a buyer appointment at a property on Bulwer Street, which is just by Hyde Park. And, you know, that's a, a, a boutique apartment, little complex of 12. On one side, you've got Northbridge. On the other side, you've got Hyde Park. So you've sort of got that suburb feel of Hyde Park, that family setting, green streets, lots of trees, that sort of thing. And then you jump across on the other side and you've got the hustle and bustle of Northbridge, the nightclubs, the bars. And that's really what you do have to choose from in Perth. You've got that, people like it because you've either got that city aspect all within a walking distance, or you've got that suburban aspect where you can take the kids down to the park on a Sunday. The suburb is a really weird suburb. If you typed in Perth suburb and you got the Google map where it highlights the actual suburb, it's not a square or a rectangle Mm. it's a wraparound Mm. and how i sort of would imagine how this happened was perth was the whole big suburb from the cbd out to sterling street out to hyde park and at some point they decided that we should carve northbridge out of this and make it its own suburb to delineate Mm. the entertainment zone so what you end up with is this sort of backward c-shaped suburb yeah and i guess you what you're referring to and you're pointing out is a fact that a lot of people wouldn't recognize is that in between Aberdeen Street and Hyde Park is the suburb of Perth. It's not Northbridge, it's not Mount Lawley or North Perth, it's mm. Perth. Yeah. It's a 6,000 postcode. Yeah, and a lot of people think of Perth as Perth as a whole. They don't think that Perth 6,000 is an actual suburb, but it actually is. Yeah. What I also love about Perth is all the different neighboring suburbs that adjoin it you know you've got west perth you've got north perth you've got leaderville that almost butts up to it you've got east perth there's so many different little pockets surrounding it mount lawley you take a bus up uh, beauford street and you're in mount lawley so i think that's what perth appeals to it appeals to people that might not want to be smack bang in the inner city lifestyle well you could be because uh, there is apartments being sold in the suburb of Perth, in, right? Exactly. So you can you've got that option if you if you do want that inner true inner city lifestyle, then you got Wellin- you know Wellington Street, uh, all up and down Wellington Street, Murray Street, Hayes Street, St George's Terrace. There are still residential apartments. Yeah, Perth six thousand. That's that's true inner city lifestyle. Isn't yeah. even the new Elizabeth Key apartments that have just been built. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so you've got that option, but then you've also got that you know, that more suburban option, that Hyde Park feel where you've got the cafes, you've got, you know, the, the, the homes where you can still drive in your driveway. Perth's an interesting suburb in the fact that people almost forget about it because they think Perth is just Perth in general, but Perth 6000 is a postcode. When I walk the streets of especially the northern side of Perth, the north of Northbridge, it reminds me of uh, being a very, very small reflection of the Sydney sort of Paddington, Surrey Hills architecture as, as, some, as a bit of that yeah. uh, terrace living, townhouse living, old cottage heritage living. You won't see it anywhere else in Western Australia. You don't see that anywhere. That actually, it's funny that you get reminded of uh, Sydney. I get reminded of Fitzroy in Melbourne. Okay. You know, a lot of those real old terrace style, early 1900 builds that you just don't see built anymore. And a lot of them have, have, have obviously kept their shells and a lot, of, a lot of new owners that have bought into those have renovated the inside. So you're getting a lot of that old meets new style property in that area, a lot of old properties you can add value to. And I think, we, like anything, 
it's a supply and demand. The, the less of it there is to choose from, the more popular it is. And I think that goes for that Hyde Park precinct around Perth. There's a lot of old character terrace homes, not a lot, a shortage that people love because there's just nothing, nothing else being built like that anywhere in Perth anymore. Can you have a family lifestyle in 6,000 postcode? Definitely. Absolutely. Tell I mean, me about how the suburb supports that. Not everyone wants to live in an apartment, but if you do want to live in an apartment, there are apartments you can choose from that will support a suburb lifestyle. I think what Perth offers where you've still got true inner city living is you can walk to the park still. There's a range of different parks. You can walk to shops. You can walk to the river. And you've got the nightlife as well. Not that that's much of a family aspect, <laughs> yeah. but you've got, you've got cinemas at Rain Square. I think the city of Perth have done an awesome job over the last couple of years giving people a reason to move in back into the Perth area. Elizabeth Quay, um, Optus Stadium, the footbridge, with all those big infrastructure projects, they've bought new cafes, new restaurants, new businesses. They've really brought life back into the area. So I think you know the city of Perth have done an awesome job over the last couple of years. Can you send your kid to school in the suburb of Perth? Yeah, <laughs> you can. You can. People don't uh, realise, but there is a, a number of schools in and around the city. You've got Trinity down in East Perth. There's schools tucked away in Highgate there, which border onto Perth. There's a range of different schools that people don't necessarily think about, but they are there. You just have to look for them. I guess it's just one of those suburbs where I think I would expect it would be for the younger family, where the kids are probably even just maximum primary school. Yeah. And the parents are very much still actively working in the city. They'd like to maybe even walk to work and yep. home. And, and it's within that walking distance, isn't it? It's funny, you know, back in the mining heyday, as we, as we knew it, Perth postcode was predominantly made up of investors because of the yields and, you know, the, the high rents that were being achieved at the time. Since the markets changed and the prices have dropped across Perth, that has brought a new demographic into the area that price point's been lowered, so it's bringing a lot of young professionals into the area that can now afford the property market in Perth, whereas three or four years ago, they couldn't. So it's interesting to see that that investor, there are investors still within Perth, but it seems to have drawn a much bigger owner-occupier crowd over the last couple of years. More so young professionals looking to start a family, these sort of people. They've, it's interesting how it's, how it's changed. And who knows, in another three or four years, that could change again. It could be back, back to the way it was. It could be predominantly investors and less owner-occupiers. So I guess you've just characterised who that buyer is, that your typical buyer is at the moment or has been recently. What does your typical seller look like? Typical seller, yeah. Well, the sellers, a lot of the sellers were old investors that had got in you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Not all investors are selling out of the market. There are a lot of investors in the Perth postcode that bought in the boom time and have come to the realisation that what they paid versus what it's going to sell for now, the, the bridge is, is too far. So a lot of people are cutting their losses. But that's leaving opportunities for people like young professionals to come in, even new investors to come in. New investors are definitely investing in Perth. It's just now the prices they're paying are far more competitive to what they were four well, or five years ago. And interest rates are super low and rental yields are growing. Just like in any suburb in Perth or in, really should be. Yeah, in Western Australia, if you don't have a positively geared rental, you've got a problem. Definitely. You've made a bad decision. Even with what's happening now with this virus, the inquiries I'm getting at the moment are predominantly still from first-home buyers. And there's a reason behind that. Rents are going up. Interest rates are really low. So it's actually cheaper for a first-home buyer to be able to buy at the moment, especially with some of these low deposit grants from the government. Interest rates are extremely low. So it's still leaving opportunities for people like first-home buyers in a market like this. 
You mentioned first home buyers. That always leads me to the idea, especially in a suburb like Perth of, you know, the off the plan apartments and things like that. Have they all dried up? Are there any opportunities where developers are coming across your desk and saying, look, we're thinking of putting this development up or we've still got this development we're trying to sell? Mm. Is, does Perth as a suburb offer that? Because it, you know, there's quite a few apartment buildings that went up in the last 10 years. Yeah, there is. It's it's funny, you know, two or three years ago, it, there was an extreme apartment glut, especially with new developments. But you look at, especially people like Finbar, who's the um, number one apartment developer in WA, all their developments that either were in construction or recently finished, they're all sold out now. So there's actually, it, it's gone from being an, a glut to being a shortage of apartments. So I think the Perth inner city market is prepared for new developments now, whereas probably 18, 24 months ago, it wasn't. There was just too much to choose from. So it's funny how that's transitioned. I think apartment living's gotten more popular over the years. There's a reason why people are building apartments because there's a demand for them. And if you look at our overall apartment numbers compared to somewhere like Sydney and Melbourne, we've still got a long way to go in terms of Especially in the CBD and inner city suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move straight into price points because it's something that most people wouldn't really research before is price points for Perth mm. as a suburb. One, as I said before, most people wouldn't even rec- recognize that it has a suburban lifestyle. Anything other than apartments in the CBD of Wellington, Murray and Hay Street and whatnot, yeah. which is a part of the, the conversation we'll have. But I want, I want to really harp on at the different options you have in different price points in this suburb. It's not just old flats it's not just apartments it's not just terraces there's also townhouses there's still some good quality sort of family homes as well Mm. let's go from bottom to top what's the cheapest thing i could buy in the suburb of perth and every price point and lifestyle point along there yeah you're right there's a lot of different price points so starting at the bottom i mean these older flats that you're referring to for example i'm selling one of them on wright street at the moment in perth you can get into a little one by one in an older building and when i say older you know 1970s 1980s builds you can start there from 150 you know those go from sort of 150 up to 200 then you move into your sort of more traditional one bedroom apartments you know, five years ago, we were selling one-bedroom apartments in the inner city area for up to 500000 Yeah. You can now buy them for 280000 290000 which is just crazy. Your two-bedders, they've come from fives and sixes and sevens, and they're now down to anywhere from three fifty to four fifty for a two-by-two apartment. That's that really coming down to that first-home buyer's number, isn't it? Exactly, and and that's, that's who's chewing those up. Your three-bedders are a little bit more of a, a scarce product. There's obviously less of those around, but you know you can get into a three-bedroom apartment now in the sort of high fours into the into the fives range. Moving away from apartments, then you come across into the Hyde Park area and you've got your semi-detached villa-style properties, which you can sort of start from sixes going up to sort of sevens at the moment. So you can get into those for sixes and, and sevens, some potentially fives if they're in, in, in a little worse for wear condition. And then you've got your you know, your green title homes, which you can still get. There's, there's a lot less of them to choose from, but you know, eights, nines into the, into the low mills is, is what you're looking at, which I think considering how close you are to the city, I think that's really good value. Uh, very much so. Look, we also have to be fair in that the square meterage of these lots are pretty small. Yeah. We're talking about anywhere from 300 squares up to a maximum of 550, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, most of them are around 400 and something, aren't they? They are. It, they are smaller lots and the streets are, are tighter, but you've got to expect that. The closer you are into the city in any part of the world, it's going to be like that. It's terrace living. You're on a 10 meter wide frontage yeah. and you've got maybe... 
15, 20 meters going back. Yeah. But these are all also zoned mainly R50, R60 as well. So a lot of people would be looking at these properties as opportunities to maybe knock it down if it's not heritage listed and build a three-story townhouse at the front and sell the land at the back or build two townhouses or do a big renovation and as you alluded to at the back where you're turning you know, the back of it into a two-story house. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of these properties as well, these older properties, they do have potential to go into a commercial aspect, turning them into an office. Um, obviously, you've got to go through the right zoning changes and that sort of thing, but, you know, you've got that um, that possibility. I've got a friend that, you know, he's got a block of land on Munger Street in Perth and he's been approved as such, subject to all your drawings and things, to build a three-level apartment building there. So there's so much you can do with them, but I always compare it to somewhere like Melbourne. I mean, look at Melbourne, for example. Perth's equivalent in Melbourne is like, what, South Melbourne around the MCG? Look how close it is to the city. A terrace home in, in that sort of suburb in Melbourne, you're paying two, three million dollars. Mm. So I think the value here is, uh, the same product. Is, yeah. is, is amazing. I have a couple of clients who, very smart people, very astute people, they're looking into this in this suburb of Perth right now, especially in between Hyde Park and Northbridge. They're struggling to find something that really demonstrates uh, value in terms of being a ready-made home to move into or a development opportunity that's sort of around the $900,000 mark. What advice could you give to someone in that space that in terms of where you'd be looking and what you'd be looking out for in, uh, in terms of what a realistic price point would be? Maybe they're, they're looking too cheap. I think with the Perth postcode around Hyde Park with that sort of product... It's really tightly held, isn't it? It's tightly held. And if, if you look through RP data, a lot of people that own in there don't have just the one property. They've got three or four, which is a really good sign in terms of if someone's buying three or four pieces in one small area, that says something about the area. It says something about the, the, the market there. So I think my advice with... Unfortunately, my advice with buyers that are looking in that area is probably just to be a little bit patient yeah. because there's just less to choose from the turnover is um, quite low it's it's similar in a market like you know your west leadables and, and your netherlands the, the market's there the turnover is a lot less and things that come on the market sell very quickly so patience but also be ready to act and be flexible on value if something pops up that you like yeah really like that all right quickly on development opportunities obviously it's not a cheap pathway to be developing in this suburb just given what the outcomes normally are they're mm. normally two or three story townhouses and apartment buildings yeah. what are you seeing developers if any doing right now as a profitable outcome what are they looking for and what are they doing with it I, i'm seeing well i think the benefit right now if you're looking for land as a developer land's extremely cheap at the moment so i'm seeing a lot of people securing land with the intention to develop in the next two years the the strategy behind that is obviously develop in two years by the time it's completed you're hitting that sort of three to five year period and the and the perth market in that time is expected to bounce up so i, I think from a buyer standpoint i know what's popular with buyers at the moment people want boutique developments with low strata fees so i think boutique for a developer there might not be as much money in boutique but you know that you've got a really sellable product i know is that because it's by boutique you mean custom custom feel custom feel and just less less numbers i think there's just not a lot of good boutique developments to choose from in perth there's a lot of sky rise but when it comes to boutique i'm talking sort of sub 15 sub 20 apartments that's what I would call boutique. I just find that from a buyer standpoint, if they can't afford the townhouse or the, or the villa, they will go to an apartment, but they want something in a small building because it just gives you that more private feel, that more community feel. From a developer standpoint, 
Financially, it may or may not make sense, but I think securing land at the moment with the intention to develop in the next couple of years for completion in the next three to four years, I think that makes sense. If you had your pick of where that piece of land would be, what would be your favorite corner of your favorite street? I've sold a lot of a property on Palmerston Street. Buyers love Palmerston Street and I can see why. In terms of location, it's great, but just the street, when you're walking down the street, I mean, I think you live close by there, you mentioned. Very close. So just the feel of that street is a good feel. It's a nice leafy street, um, some beautiful homes along there, location's great. You can get to, you know, you can get to Northbridge, West Perth and even Leaderville, Mount, Mount Lawley from there. So Palmerston Street would probably be one. I'm just trying to think. Munger Street's not a bad street. I, th- I think there's a range of different spots I could I could I could pick down there. Chapman Street's a beautiful one. It's funny that little Perth pocket. It feels like it's not Perth in a way. It feels like you're walking down a street in Fitzroy in Melbourne mm. at times. Yeah, so. very true. That's how I feel as well. For me, my favourite part is really as close as you can get to Tarts or Sayers Sisters. <laughs> yeah. You're doing pretty well. Yeah. Because you've got that little coffee shop lifestyle. You've got Hyde Park. You're only five minutes into Northbridge. And you're really only a walk away from Beaufort Street as well at that point. The cafe culture around there, like you're saying, that's a big draw card. I feel Um, like it could improve even further though. I feel like we've got a patronage now in our little suburb of Perth where you look at something like Chew Bakery, which isn't Perth, but it's just on the other side of Hyde Park. And that place is tiny. It has no advertising, no signage. I don't really know anything too ridiculously beneficial about going there compared to other places but it will always have a 20 meter line out the front and you wonder how and you think well look if there were just a couple more around there they'd probably be pretty patroned as well it's funny that chew bakery's got that real melbourneized feel about it the way they've set it up you know you walk down the main streets in melbourne city and you, you do see a lot of these chew bakeries they're just holes in the wall they're tiny little places but they do great coffee they're funky looking. So I think it's, yeah, a lot of it comes down to the the people that are running them. But I think where True Bakery is, especially you've got Hyde Park there, which, you know, for someone to grab a coffee and go and sit in the park, that, uh, that's a pretty nice way to spend a Sunday. All right, last question. It's the median house price question. Brad Triplett, what is the median house price of Perth? That's, <laughs> which that's, is going to be tough for that's you. A more, that's a more hard question to answer than what you'd think. Median house price in Perth, it's currently... 500,000. <laughs> you're laughing at me. But that's obviously, you know, you've got apartments, you've got houses, you've got townhouses. So it's, it, you can't throw a blanket over it and say this is the median house price. Well, <laughs> I'll ask you two questions then. With $500,000, what would you buy? I'd buy a nice boutique apartment. Okay. Is there a favorite street that you'd buy it on? Um, I've just sold a, a townhouse in the Maltings on Palmerston Street. That's one of my favorite complexes. Reason being, it is a heritage-listed site. It was an old brewery. It's, it's got the old Brooklyn uh, brownstones warehouse feel, doesn't it? It does. It's just different. Everything I've listed in there and sold in there has sold really quickly with more than one person wanting to buy it. And it comes down to you know, less, there's just less of it. There's less to choose. It's unique. It's got character. It's not your shiny brand new apartment that you see a lot of. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's got life. It's got history and, and people like that. All right. And if you had 950 grand, which I think is a more fair <laughs> yeah. median house price for the suburb, what would you buy? For 950 at the moment, you, you could get yourself a, a nice, a nice character home in Perth. Um, what you'd buy? Probably not what I'd buy, no. I'd, I, I like the new feel, so I'd probably be looking at a townhouse. But I think for that sort of budget at the moment, you can buy an old green title home. It will need work, but you can add value to that. So that's probably what I'd look at. Brad, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate this chat. It's probably one that will be very 
eye-opening for a lot of people to just recognize that this suburb even exists believe it or not i'd love to have you in again go and get highgate and those sort of places we'll have another chat about them too thanks trent thanks for having me on thank you for listening to another episode of the perth property show if you've only just joined the conversation you can catch up by heading over to our website perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our facebook page Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!